We are still working to understand mental health in South Dakota, but we stand on the shoulders of a South Dakota Hall of Fame inductee. From SDPB Radio, it's Thursday, August 17th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, Dr. Robert Arneo. He came from a Deadwood logging family and into the world of psychology, and he redefined how we think about mental health in the state, particularly in the rural regions. We'll highlight the intersection of molecules and forensic science. Kevin Wooster walks in the door of a state capitol and contemplates what it means for a building to be the people's building. Plus, a panorama of a painting that leads us to the final resting place of an artist in Watertown. That's coming up later in the hour. We're broadcasting live today from the Black Hills of South Dakota. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first. And I'm Lori Walsh. As the demand for fossil fuels begins to go the way of the dinosaurs, one might expect the mining industry to soon follow. But, of course, our energy demands aren't decreasing, they're just changing, and so is the mining industry. Dr. Andrea Bricky is a professor of mining engineering and management at South Dakota Mines, and she is with me in the Black Hills Surgical Hospital studio here in our Rapid City spaces to break down the challenges and opportunities for growth in South Dakota mining. I'm so happy to be across the table from you today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. We have been out here talking about the Black Hills National Forest. I've been doing a lot of research and interviews, and one of the things that is clear is that mining has changed. Yes. And there's a big workforce issue. Um, if it's not here already, it is imminent. Tell me a little bit about what you're seeing in the industry. Yes. Um, so the mining industry is... Um, while we see changes in certain commodities, we seeing, we're seeing increases in other commodities, especially with related to renewable energy. And, and what that means is that we have quite a, a, an older workforce in the mining industry that's going to be retiring. And we expect somewhere around 50% of our current workforce to retire in the next 10 years. That leaves a big gap. And what that does is it also means that we need to bring in more people rather quickly into the industry so we can get them trained up. Now, mining has drastically improved their safety record to the point where we really are, um, we're not in the top as far as uh, uh, fatalities um, uh, from an industry perspective. We have worked very hard to build a strong safety culture because uh, it is a hazardous environment. It's, it's working around machinery. It's working in these hazardous environments, but we have managed to really make it much safer through technology and our modern mining uh, applications. And so what this means, though, is we need, we've, we need to encourage younger generations um, to, um, to be in the mining industry. And really, we need their skill sets, too, because now the mining industry is moving into autonomy. We can remotely operate three dozers from a computer room in a building in a city and operating a, a dozers, you know, 100 miles away. Um, and, and they can operate all three of those simultaneously because we automate many of the processes and just certain aspects have to be run by a human. So this is really, we need younger people who have these technical skills as well as, um, you know, robotics and data analytics and optimization. So um, 
we have a retiring workforce, but we need this this younger workforce to come in and replace that, but with new things. I mean, we're new technology, and so they need that different skill set. What sorts of things are putting in a pipeline in place where you get the right students into the right program to move into the right field? Great question. And we're really trying to, um, really, it's it's really about informing students about this opportunity. I know I've gone to many career fairs and many students come up and they, they're like, what is what is mining engineering? Yeah. They've yeah. never even heard of this or, or other fields like geological engineering that are related to the mining industry that are very needed for um, creating our commodities. And so... Um, that's what we're doing is doing a lot of camps, um, a lot of educational outreach. We um, There's other organizations within um, South Dakota that are also working on educating teachers. At, or We can look at other states that have done that as well, where they develop teacher programs to help provide resources, you know, in-class activities to help educate about um, how we get our minerals, you know, yes. just like we educate about how we get our food and where our, our food products come from, we're kind of trying to do the same thing with where we get our copper and our limestone from as well. So if, for example, the first thing a student says is like, what is this? What is the next thing that they say like, oh, I don't want to do that? Or what is the next way that sort of tip their hand that tells you that they don't really understand what this field would be and then you can help educate them further? And um, I think a lot of it is just an un, uh, from a there's been a perspective that mining is not really needed. It's not something they see um, and that um, it's sometimes they like <laughs> I, I will speak to young young ladies um, about where their makeup comes from. And they're always just shocked when I tell them that it came out of the ground and and that that's where, you know, mineral makeup, that's that's where it comes from. It's a mineral that we mine. And, and so I, I think it's not so much, it's kind of their perception that they have, I think, going into um, that they've, you know, mining is this dirty kind of unsafe they have a coal miner yeah. you know circa 1940 image in their head absolutely okay. or, or the you know the the mold miner down by the creek with the gold pan and the okay. dirty overalls and the beard down to prospector <laughs> prospector kind of um okay and, all right yeah yeah it's not that <laughs> yes no nowadays it is i mean we're high tech we've got you know we're, we're doing our geology with tablets and scanning with lidar to see what kind of minerals or different types of technology that we can um, we have a system called LIBS that, you know, you point a, a, a handheld device and it can tell us what the elemental components are in that rock. And yeah. and that's that's what everything is made out of. You mentioned girls, talking to girls at school events. Yes. And, and certainly for you as a woman in science, you've been mentored by other people who invited you into that STEM space. How do you get young women and girls believing that they can overcome this either imaginary barrier or very real glass ceiling or how, how do you get them invited into the space and said this is for you too mm -hmm. this high-tech field is also for you what do you say to them I tell them there's a lot of adventures and um, I've been able to travel the world and see a lot of different things and what I tell them also is the impact that it has um, I, I did a project in Sierra Leone once and um, this uh, is a very poor country in, in the western part of Africa. And um, 
that project provided hundreds of jobs for people in that area that was very uh, economically depressed. And, and so mining is, is a way that countries can develop wealth. And so um, in, in this is one of the things that we can do to change, change the world. And we, and we can do it, uh, things like in um, our cobalt that we need for our cell phones that is being mined in the DRC, um, in the De Democratic Republic of the Congo, where it's a lot of manual labor. It's artisanal mining. It's, it's not the mining that we would do here in the United States, but it's very um, labor intensive. There's no safety regulations. There's no environmental regulations. That's where a lot of our cobalt's coming from. These are problems that we can help solve so that these areas can have economic growth, that they can produce these commodities that the world needs, but also um, have, you know, develop their countries and, and, and have the resources um, to be able to do that safely and have families and build their lives. Dr. Andrea Brickey is a professor of mining engineering and management at South Dakota Mines. Uh, we'll put some information up on our website as well. Thank you so much for this uh, peek behind the curtain of mining education and that, uh, you know, getting young people an idea of different careers for the future. We really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm your host, Lori Walsh. Well, tomorrow, a forensic chemist will give some credit to a hardworking little guy in his field of expertise. Scott Lee will talk about the big role that molecular science plays in forensics. That's during this month's Discovery on Tap event in Pier. Scott is a forensic chemist with the South Dakota Department of Health, and he is with me now on the phone. Scott, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. A molecular puzzle. Help us understand what exactly your field of study is and what we might experience at this discovery on tap. So I work as a forensic toxicologist. So I am. my main purpose is to look for uh, uh, drugs that people have taken. In, so it might be in their bloodstream or in their urine. Um, and some of the process of identifying unknown compounds, you don't know whether they're, they're there or not, is to perform a, uh, spectroscopy, uh, which is basically solving the structure. Um, nowadays, we have libraries to solve most of it, but in the early days, a lot of it was based on using fancy instruments to look at small components of a molecule to piece together uh, the overall structure. You know, you might get one, you know, a handful of the... Uh, atoms, uh, the structures of them on one side of the molecule, then you might get some others on the other, put them all together, solve, solve the structure, you know, just like solving a jigsaw puzzle, kind of. Hmm. And tell me a um, little bit about, the, like, the applications. Is this, you know, I'm thinking this is a crime scene. This is, when you talk about forensics, is it, it directly related to uh, criminology or criminal justice, or are there other applications as well? Largely, yes. Uh, one of the uh, misconceptions that's common in like CSI and shows like that is the scientists mm -hmm. are the ones processing the crime scene. That's never really the case. Um, in the most of the casework that I'm involved in is going to be things like uh, people driving under the influence of drugs, uh, overdose cases, uh, suspected, um, you know, unattended deaths, people who have passed and they want to confirm that, you know, drugs were not involved in that process. Um, anything like that. So, uh, 
all of my work is largely, yeah, just in the lab, not really involved in the case, in the, the investigation itself. All right. So what do you have in front of you and what are you looking for? So you would get a, a, a question that you're trying to, to answer and then a sample? Yep. So I would large, what we typically get is a blood sample um, and I will uh, just be determining what drugs, if any, may have been in that blood sample. Um, I usually don't get a whole lot of details beyond, you know, why they may have been pulled over or why they may have been uh, suspected of consuming drugs, anything like that. Um, it's just uh, uh, we get a blood sample and we look for any a handful of targeted drugs specifically, um, things like, you know, methamphetamine, THC, cocaine, uh, amongst a bunch of other prescription drugs as well. All right. So how small is too small? What is what is detectable? Uh, that depends on the drug. Um, and, it, and it depends on the instrument you're using. Uh, uh, different instruments have different benefits. The instrument that I use is a uh, liquid chromatography, excuse me, liquid chromatography tandem mass spec. Um, <laughs> and it is a very sensitive instrument. Um, a couple of the compounds I look for, uh, probably the one I'm most sensitive for, or looked at the lowest level for, I should say, is fentanyl. Uh, I go down to, I currently go down to one nanogram per mil. Um, so a very, a very small amount of, uh, of fentanyl. Um, uh, but some of my other, you know, some other drugs, you know, might, uh, you know, be either less sensitive for, or I just look at higher levels because that's the relevant concentration I'd expect to see in blood from somebody taking okay. taking the drugs. Um, uh, you know, barbiturates, for instance, are a lot higher concentrations in, in the blood than you'll ever see fentanyl. Um, now, here's something I heard instance. this week, and, and, and let me know if your field has anything to sort of illuminate this story that, in a way that would help me understand it better. But uh, people who are overdosing on fentanyl, you know, getting Narcan, getting to the emergency room, the first responders have done a great job at bringing them back with the Narcan. And then hours later, it, uh, you know, the fentanyl is still in their system and it outlasts the Narcan. From, from, a, from a chemistry standpoint, like what do we not understand about some of these substances? Because I find that terrifying. Um, I can't really speak too much to that. And I haven't been on the, uh, on the medical end very much. Um, I know Narcan is a very is very effective um, at uh, displacing uh, fentanyl from the, the its binding spots in the brain. Um, okay. Uh, depending on how much fentanyl you you an individual has taken, they might require multiple doses of Narcan. I do know that. Um, uh, usually, one or two sprays isn't quite enough. Um, I haven't mm -hmm. read the studies on people falling back under when the Narcan leaves, but uh, I yeah. I'd have to read more to that. I haven't read those. Yeah, so let me ask you this is like you know we hear these things all the time now that is something that has a scientific answer but I know I don't know the answer. And so that just leaves me with more questions, which is also part of what you do with this uh program that you're hosting and with your work in the you know the community theater as well with the peer players mm -hmm. where you're taking science stories and you're helping people understand them, be curious mm -hmm. and understand the human nature that is also involved in the field of science. Tell me a little bit about science communication and uh, expression and how that intersects with the work that you do. Um, yeah, so I'll just kind of give a little bit of background for those that might not know this Discovery on Tap series. We host in Pierre, uh, yeah. the Discovery Center here in Pierre, 
hosts once a month. Um, they'll have a scientist talk about one of their some expertise that they have in the field of science on a more social, laid-back level. You know, every, you know, a lot of us will have a, you know, it's, it's at the St. Charles Lounge, so most of us will have a beer in hand as we're discussing the topics. Um, there's usually some hands-on activities and some demonstrations uh, involved in whatever presentation might be given. We've had a huge variety too. We know uh, we had, you know, just listening to your uh, last speaker on, we had someone from Dakota uh, from a School of Mines on uh, a few months back talking about uh, the metallurgy courses that they teach, uh, yeah. paleontology, uh, uh, entomology, all that kind of thing. Um, uh, as far as communicating science, it is it is an interesting. Uh, task because it's important to be able to communicate these high-level topics to the everyday populace, which can be very challenging. Especially, you know, I look at myself where I've been talking chemistry on a high level for over a decade now, and it's sometimes I forget what is considered general knowledge and what's not. So I have to reel myself <laughs> back a little bit. You know, I might be talking about a topic and just throw out the, the word orbitals randomly, assuming everyone knows what I'm talking about, but that's not necessarily the case. So it's playing that balance a little bit, communicating it, distilling the message a bit and delivering it in a way that um, everybody can understand, trying to use uh, appropriate terminology that um, is not going to just get everybody lost. It's a challenge, but it's also a joy when people actually pick up on what you're saying. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I bet. All right. Well, if that sounds good to you, then uh, the South Dakota Discovery Center is hosting Scott Lee Friday, August 18th. That's tomorrow, 530 to 730 local time. That Pier, Fort Pier area will put some uh, links up. It's at the St. Charles Lounge, as Scott said. And uh, you get to ask him your questions uh, right in front of him. So, Scott, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate uh, getting to know just a little bit about this really complicated puzzle. Yeah, thank you for having me. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, today I have the pleasure of sitting down with a man who has changed so many lives. Dr. Bob Arneo is a psychologist, a founder, a teacher, an advocate, a pioneer, and now an inductee into the South Dakota Hall of Fame. Dr. Arneo founded Psychological Associates of the Black Hills in 1981. He founded Learning Solutions in 2001, which provides personalized tutoring services to children and teens with learning or reading challenges. He's left a mark on the next generation of mental health professionals by teaching at South Dakota State University, USD, and the University of Sioux Falls. And he has long worked to increase access to mental health care in South Dakota's rural communities. It is due to that advocacy for reading, mental health, suicide prevention, that he has earned more awards from the South Dakota Psychological Association than any other psychologist. We are just scratching the surface of his accomplishments there, so we will get to know the man and the inductee into the South Dakota Hall of Fame. Bob, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much. And congratulations on this honor. I appreciate that. It is quite an honor. I'm guessing that you don't do the things that you do or haven't done the things that you've done in order to get an award or <laughs> in order to have your plaque up somewhere. Um, what does motivate you over your career? What have been the things that got you out of bed in the morning, that got you working really hard to solve the next, what can seem to be an insurmountable problem? Well, you don't set out to 
solve insurmountable problems. You said I would have an interest. And I attended Black Hills State College and became very interested in psychology. Had a wonderful mentor there, Walter Higby. And Walter mentored many, many students. Uh, those people in the audience, I'm sure some will recognize his name. And he showed me what kind of a change you could make working with an education. He was a special educator. And what kind of change you could make working with uh, disadvantaged students, doing research, and so forth. That led to my going to the University of Iowa and becoming a school psychologist, and then later returning there into psychology. So I was interested in the area, interested in people, and maybe the, the basis of it, I'm the seventh of 11 children, mm -hmm. and so we're interested in people you know, throughout and seeing, seeing what, what people could do. Once my wife and I, who were both from uh, the Lee Deadwood area, uh, we went to high school together. Once we returned to South Dakota from the University of Iowa, uh, we st I started a, a practice and developed it into a group practice because of the need. During that time, there were some crises in mental health that occurred, in particular a cluster of adolescent suicides. We had uh, more uh, adolescent suicides in a period of six months than we, in, in just in western South Dakota that we could count, yeah. than we would expect uh, for a full year in the whole state. And so as a response to that, what, what do you do? There's a, a, a saying, I think it's attributed to an African philosopher, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And this was obviously a community issue, so we began to pull groups together, saying, what can we do? What can we do with this? And that then led into um, um, developing uh, education. Well, first thing we found that was necessary was to train people. Remember, this is back in the day before the Internet. Yeah. And if you wanted to learn something as a professional, you either bought a book or you went to Chicago to the workshop. Well, in rural areas, that's, that's really not practical. So we started workshops, and for 13 years, we bring experts to train people in South Dakota. Then we needed to provide more providers, and so we worked with the social work group, the counselor group, the psychology group, and helped develop licensing laws, uh, criteria of what you needed to do to, to be able to be trained, to be a provider to help that, and then worked with the legislature uh, and with the insurance industry to make the services available. So when you look back on it, it's, wow, that was a, um, a lot of things that we accomplished. One, you, you didn't do it alone. You worked with many, many other people. And secondly, it was just need-based. These things came up. And, and as, as just as a human being, even more so as a mental health provider, it's like we have a responsibility to try to make an impact. So that's how it kind of unfolded, and it's kind of amazing. It's been 30 years in the process. And so I'm hearing, you know, there are geographical challenges, there are financial challenges, there, there were challenges of, you know, nobody's really thought this through before for our area. Were there other things that you discovered that were really important to who we are culturally, to rural South Dakota particularly, that provided challenges or obstacles to getting mental health services, places, stigmas that needed to be overcome, or real opportunities that said, you know, th these are people that want to take care of each other, for example, and, and we're all on board to solving problems. What was unique is what I'm asking about this place that you recall as you did that work? Well, Everything is a double-edged sword. Some, some good things have other sides to them. 
we are fiercely independent, and we um, uh, all challenges. Farmers, ranchers, my family's on the logging business. Every day face challenges, and they learn how to handle them on their own, and to deal with them. And sometimes mental health was seen as being an aspect of dependency, that you know just buck up and 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 face that. What changed that is that so many of the referrals for mental health services came from the professional most trusted, even by the, the uh, most fiercely independent family, and that was their physician. And we worked very closely with the medical community because the physicians had the trust of the patients and the family. And it would take physicians to say, look, I'm not going to be able to help you with this the way that this other person can. And in the beginning uh, of my practice, all of our offices were within medical clinics, mm -hmm. and those were where referrals came from. So the, the independence is a good thing. You want to say, well, yes, we want you to be independent. We want you to learn the skills to fight a depression. The depression is the monster that's creating the difficulties and you need new skills the same way you might need new equipment on your job to handle something that's occurred. You need something to begin to handle these things that uh, you can't otherwise um, know how or should be expected to know how to address. So coming off of that original um, really dramatic crisis that many of us who live here still remember, flash forward to a pandemic and the days that we're living through now, we have the internet, we have social media, again, double-edged sword, good, bad. Um, what is some of the work that you think needs to be done in, the, in, in 2023? What's next for mental health in the Black Hills in South Dakota? Well, I think what's next for mental health uh, uh, in general is dealing with some of the negative side of the sword of social media. Uh, I think there's clear data to show that as social media has become more prominent, and particularly adolescents and young adults have engaged in more and more hours of social media, mental health issues, including suicide, have shown a rise. And to be able to work with that and to find within a, a, a social context some way to not let this happen. Much of what happens on social media, in my opinion, doesn't need to happen. And so we need to address that. That's, that's the, that's the if, epidemic if could, of today. If I could interrupt and jump in, because what I'm wondering is, from your perspective, is it what is happening while you're on social media, or is it what you're not doing? Well, it's both, but, but a great deal of it is what happens while you're on social media, okay. particularly uh, among adolescents and young adults. And so to be able to address that, and I think that, that it sounds like legislators are beginning to, to look at that and say, well, let's, let's not let this run wild. I think the other thing, and I think schools are stepping forward, is that we need more assistance in places where uh, all children go. Uh, for example, I ran a tutoring company, but the difficulty was uh, that um, a lot of the children who need tutoring could not afford that. A lot of people who need things can't afford it, and public school is the one place where we can do that. There's a lot of uh, programs being developed to help children learn how to deal with bullying, 
to help children know how to deal with some of the social media issues that are coming up. And, and my own belief is that this needs to be part of the curriculum. This is part of the things that we need to learn how to manage in our lives because even if we move forward and get better control over some of the negative side of the social media, a negative side of, of, of these things that are happening, uh, we need greater supports. I don't think any parent is born with the skills to know how to work with their child and some of the things that they're going to encounter in today's society watching people being blown up in the war in Ukraine, watching these things happen. These are not types of things that we used to experience, particularly at younger ages. Mm -hmm. So I think there is a challenge, and of course with every challenge and opportunity, that we can come forward and we can work with that and make the changes and give the people the support that they need. And again, the African saying, we need to do it together. We need to move forward together and not just have mental health people working but we're in conjunction with others. I was just listening on the way in to a, the Surgeon, U.S. Surgeon General's podcast, and he was interviewing David Brooks, and they were talking about why are we so sad, why are we so mean, and getting back to what you're saying about bullying and then just the isolation, loneliness that you know came that, that is rampant, that is an epidemic right now. Is it... Um, you know, getting more mental health providers in the right communities and having them be more accessible? Is that the biggest challenge? Is there, are there other things other than that that you think are important community uplifters? I think the accessibility is probably the most immediate issue. Um, most therapists, even though we were able to greatly expand the number of mental health providers through all the things that I've talked about, yeah. uh, most have waiting lists to get in. Many will not see new people. They're full. Even uh, mental health centers have a hard time meeting the demand. So the most immediate issue is access. Part of that uh, gets related uh, to also funding, mental health funding, because uh, even if you have... Um, um, a, a sliding fee scale, uh, a Cadillac for $5,000 is a tremendous value if you have $5,000. And in my family, we grew up with the things that we needed, but we didn't have any excess. And be, to be able to provide those services to the people there, it, it, again, it takes, it takes a group. It takes a group. We have to, okay, how do we look at the, how do we look at the accessibility? We have to have the providers, but then there also be the accessibility to do that. Beyond that, then we need to look at the things that are feeding some of these, some of these issues. Yes, um, the, uh, we are in a, a time where uh, civil conversations seem to be rare. Uh, there are times when um, uh, families cannot talk, cannot express their views. Um, you are in the news, you know the threats um, that happen. If someone expresses a view that someone else doesn't like, um, they not only threaten to kill them, they set out to do it. And, and this, is, this is something that, uh, again, as a group, we need to turn back and say, I don't care what your belief is. I don't care what your thoughts are. We do not do that. And we will not accept that. And we certainly do not cheer it. We don't clap and say yes when somebody is, is exhibiting that type of behavior. Uh, human beings have uh, uh, tremendous adaptability, but part of our adaptability is to be very aggressive. 
And we need to modify that and we need to deal with that as saying, okay, as civilized people, we don't do that. We have other ways of doing that because in the long run, it will all fall apart. And in the long run, uh, we, we, we're, not, we're not going to survive under those types of things. Now, we have the capacity to do good and we have the capacity to make that good face some of the challenges we have. So the most immediate thing is accessibility. But that, and that involves several prongs, uh, availability, geographics, um, financial, all kinds of things. But the other part is to come together as a society and say, look, uh, we are different. Um, uh, on, on the moment of my conception, it was decided that I would not be the center for the Boston Celtics. I'm five foot six. So that's not going to happen. So we all have differences, but we can live with that and we can find happiness with it and we can support each other in the process. The wisdom of uh, Dr. Robert Arneo, an inductee into the South Dakota Hall of Fame. It has been a delight to get to know you just a little bit. Thank you for the work that you've done on behalf of all South Dakotans and congratulations. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Let's take a moment now for a ride through Hill City. So this week I have been here in the Black Hills of South Dakota talking with people about the Black Hills National Forest. You'll hear more about that soon. But for today, I also wanted to highlight the work of another SDPB team that has been busy in the hills. The Dakota Life crew has been hard at work in Hill City, among other places. Let's listen in now for a taste of their multi-layered storytelling. Here are the sounds of Hill City, compiled by SDPB's Jackson Thorson. Stay tuned for the latest season of Dakota Life. And as always, you can find their most recent stories online, sdpb.org slash Dakota Life. More in the moment from the Black Hills is coming up next. I will catch up with Kevin Wooster. He's on the road on listener-supported SDPB Radio. You 
are listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, Kevin Wooster has often tread the halls of the South Dakota State Capitol in Pierre, and that means in the past few years he has filed in an orderly manner through its one public entrance and ducked through a metal detector. Now, he really noticed how restrictive that feels in our capital when he recently toured a different state's capital building, and he is with me on the phone now to talk about accessibility versus security in what is essentially the people's place. Kevin, you're on the road. How's it going? Hey, Lori, it's wonderful. I'm down in Anderson at St. Agnes Church. We're here for Memorial Mass for Nicholas Black Elk. That's all part of the canonization effort by the Catholic Church, and we hope that will eventually lead to him being declared a saint. Uh, we were up the gravesite this morning, which is already always always a, a you know inspiring experience. And I'm here talking to you. And before we get too far into capital security, I have to ask you: Have you been fishing lately? <laughs> I was just going to say. And yesterday, you were all over Spearfish Canyon with me in your truck. While the fine listeners of this state were listening to the history of hip hop, which I'll have to go back and check out, I was doing a little yep. reporting, and yeah, a little fishing. Um, it, it was a good day. Thank you, Kevin. Yeah. Yeah. We, as we say, did you have any luck? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how to answer that question. Yes. I pulled a rainbow trout out of Spearfish Creek with the yeah, yeah. assistance with, uh, with Kevin Wooster's fly rod and Kevin Wooster's assistance. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Well, first, oh, what a thrill. first day fly fishing and you caught a wild rainbow in Spearfish Creek. Not bad. Oh, not bad. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, let's just talk yeah. about that for the rest of the... Now I understand yeah. why everybody just wants to talk <laughs> about fishing. <laughs> okay. So to this point, you're on the road for Nicholas Black Elk to be present for that. You were on the road yesterday. We were talking about journalism, really understanding a piece of land that you're reporting on. Um, and you, to understand the state capital, you got to walk inside. So what were you doing yeah. in Nebraska in regards to, like, checking out the state capitol? Well, I, I was down there with Mary, my wife, and we were visiting her son, Sean, and his wife, Emma, and they're now four children. We were there to see the youngest, uh, just recently born a few weeks ago, and uh, took three of the kids to, I've never been to the Nebraska state capitol, and they'd been there, and Mary had been there, so we went to, to so that I could see it, and as we were approaching, it's it's a kind of an imposing, very tall structure. You know, the second tallest uh, capital in the country, 400 feet. Uh, only second because uh, Louisiana Governor Huey Long many years ago wanted Louisiana's to be the tallest, so it's 450. Uh, but they were walking up, and Mary started to go up to this back door. That, you know, and I said, uh, I don't think that'll be open with a frame of reference of the security in our capital. And she grabbed it, and it was open. And so I stepped in, ran into a state employee and said, hey, I'm a little surprised. We can just walk in and had a conversation. And she said, yeah, all the main floor doors are open. It's the people's place. Uh, it should be accessible to the people, which got me all thinking right. about. Which got you thinking. <laughs> and that got you, got you writing. Now, she said we got security on speed dial. So you saw security. It wasn't like an I, unsecure place, right? You, you picked them no, out of the crowd. Yeah. And I, as we, you know, we took a tour and I kind of veered off from our little group and went over to the governor's up. You know, it's very dark hallways down there. It's not bright like our capital. It's a very different atmosphere. And uh, 
I went down uh, to the governor's office, stuck my hat in, and uh, the receptionist said, come on in, look around, take pictures, whatever. And I mentioned again that I was surprised that I could just walk in. And she said the same thing, that uh, uh, governors uh, and the legislators had, you know, had tightened security up uh, in many ways, but uh, but wanted to keep those doors open and very accessible. And as she said, we have security on speed dial. And there were two guys that I'm pretty sure were were, were there for security that were plain clothes, but looked like they could handle any situation that came up, up if needed. So. So what does it mean to to have security at the level that we do at our state capitol? Because it is relatively new. What does it change? Um, what are some of your thoughts on that? Well, I hate it. Uh, and maybe we need it, but I hate it. I, I don't like because I love to go in the front door of our capitol, the big front doors, I should say, uh, that coming up the, the great steps. It's such a beautiful approach, the front of the Capitol. And it's just uh, some uh, an experience that I, I'm sad that more people won't be able to have now. And it's, uh, I don't, you know, I don't know about you, but I always get a little edgy when I go through security, even though I know I'm fine. I always think, is, is there something in my pocket or my shoe or <laughs> something that, you know, is going to trip this thing? And, and you go through the the screening room and go through the, you know, the metal detector and send your items through the x-ray machine. And it takes a little bit of fun out of the visit, in my opinion. But I guess the question is, is the trade-off worth the extra security? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Kevin Wooster explores that question in his column, and um, we're going to let you get back to the business of the day. But thank you so much for yesterday. And uh, you'll hear more about that story coming up in the weeks ahead as I bring it to our listeners, but um, I really appreciate your time today and yesterday. I love it. Thanks so much. It, it was great. Thanks, Lori. Well, in the mid-1800s, a painting went on an international tour. Mississippi Panorama depicted landscapes along the Mississippi from the mouth of the Yellowstone all the way to New Orleans. It was also known as Banvard's Grand Panorama of the Mississippi or the Three Mile Painting. Well, it was really more like half a mile, but either way, it was a world-famous painting by a world-famous painter, John Banvard. While he was originally from New York, his final resting place is, wait for it, Watertown, South Dakota. And that is where Nicholas Lowe recently traveled to study the painter and the mark he left on U.S. history. Nicholas is a professor of historic preservation at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, and he joins us now on the phone. Nicholas, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, thank you for inviting me. This is exciting to talk about John Bambard. <laughs> Tell us what, what your interest was in him in the first place. Where's the first time that you intersected with his work? Um, I've been researching and uh, kind of looking at uh, this whole phenomena of, uh, and, you know, moving image panoramas. It seems to be very much an American thing, although they they existed in other parts of the world as well. But it took off in a particular way here, you know, here in the States. And I began to research uh, a particular painter from uh, just about the same time as Banvard, because there were a number of them. It wasn't just John Banvard. There were, there, there were many people making these things. And they were typically, uh, you know, showing landscapes, uh, kind of depicting uh, the spaces that were opening up because of the westward expansion and all the rest of it. 
And they kind of communicated to audiences in the East and in Europe that, you know, America was a vast and unexplored nation uh, or place because it wasn't fully a nation at that time. It wasn't certainly not, you know, not in the way that we know it now. So I got involved in uh, traveling um, along um, uh, basically the Westwood Trail, following another panorama maker in uh, that uh, had had made a panorama called the Grand Moving Mirror of the Overland Trail. I went to the locations that uh, that this particular artist had been and looked at his drawings and compared it to the landscape today and made my own works. And as a progression of that research, I I got into looking at Bambard. And um, the moving panorama is, is one of a kind of panorama. The other panoramas are the 360-degree rotunda panoramas that also toured the world and were also part of World's Fair displays, uh, you know, in many cities in the U.S. and sort of elsewhere in the world. It's a, it's a whole phenomenon, and it's a whole yeah. thing which prefigures a lot of what we now understand as media technology, which, which my, myself and colleagues who are studying these things find really fascinating. Yeah, this is what I want to talk to you about is because, I mean, this was big for the time. This was a big deal at yes. the time, figuratively and literally. What, how yes. did this artist sort of want to be in that space of being the first or being, you know, doing something that hadn't been done before? What kind of person was he? Well, I would imagine Bambard would, would be a pretty outgoing uh, soul. Mm-hmm. He, you know, to present a panorama, you would have to be a showman of kinds. You would stand on a stage probably in front of a, of a you know, opera house full of people. You would have to wax lyrical about the landscape. So you imagine the, the, the kind of person he was, was, was kind of vivacious, excited, happy to talk, you know, was, was kind of, uh, you know, had been out sort of traveling himself. I mean, m- many people who were in the West at that time were, were pretty uh, intrepid folks. You had to be, to be, to be on the river, to be in any part of the unexplored territory. Was a was a bit of a you know a bit of a challenge, so you imagine people were adventurous, and uh, it seems that Bamvard put on a pretty good show. I mean, the accounts that you read of, of what he was like on stage was he was very entertaining. Uh, you know, the performance that he gave was about three hours long. Uh, oh, wow. Typically, I mean, I've, <laughs> I've I've read lots of lots of accounts of it, and some seem to say it was maybe a couple of hours, and some indicate it was possibly three. It'd be like a whole you know evening. Yeah. yeah, entertainment. It's basically. a thing. So, it's a whole thing. We're yeah. going to do a thing now. Yeah. Okay. So, how did yeah. this thing move? I mean, what kind of technology was involved in displaying? It's not on a wall. It's not a permanent installation in a public art no. space. This is a, you know, w- they roll it up. What? How did he get it around? Yeah. Well, the, to to your point, you was you know, we did, it was billed as a three mile long painting. I don't know how real that is, or or whether that's even possible. Um, <laughs> Typically, they would be on rolls, maybe the rolls, are, if you imagine, sort of seven to nine feet high rolls of canvas. And typically, those mm-hmm. rolls would be about 150 feet long. They would get switched out mid-performance in much the way that film, when, you know, screening film, you, you switch reels. Uh, and mm-hmm. it's thought, you know, one of, the, one of the things that people often talk about in relation to moving panoramas is, is that they prefigured, uh, you know, what we now know as cinema. Uh, and you can, I mean, there's a very clear relationship, you know, it's storytelling, it's moving pictures, although the picture would scroll past, obviously, it wasn't an animated image, uh, yeah. although it would be animated with light, that's the thing, they were performative oh. in the sense that they were often painted on thin, thin cloth, which is probably why that many of them don't exist anymore, because they were just very yeah. fragile, 
and they would shine lights from behind. There would be moonlit scenes across the Mississippi River. You know, it's kind of romantic and dramatic. So it's a it's I guess it's equivalent to the kind of immersive technologies that we we kind of know in another way. I mean, it's a you know the, the feeling of being transported when you're watching a film uh, is is I think pretty. Uh, consistent with how people would have experienced, uh, you know, viewing one of these. All right, Nicholas Lowe, we're running up against time, but I would have 8,000 <laughs> more questions for you. So um, hopefully you'll come back and talk to us again as we learn about this uh, artist who died in Watertown and is it buried there, but had such an impact on the world of art and even cinema. Absolutely. Nicholas Lowe, scholar, thank you so much for telling us this story. We appreciate your time. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for inviting me, and I would delightfully come back. Speak <laughs> soon. Excellent. More to the story. That is our show for today. We hope that it served you, and uh, tomorrow I'll still be here in the Black Hills coming to you live. We're going to talk to the mayor of Rapid City and lots of other folks. As always, from all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, we thank you for listening.